welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. This year has really been uh, an eventful one uh, for those of us who have been inside the psychedelic scene for a long time. Uh, the, the rate of change of uh, the public discussion about psychedelics, of the, the shifts in uh, psychedelic therapy, in the increasing openness of the powers that be to uh, consider psychedelics as a source not only of uh, medical or psychological healing, but also even possibly as amplifications of uh, normal human faculties, is all uh, pretty remarkable. But if there was one particular event that I would say that me and my, my cronies and pals over the years have been looking forward to this year. It was the publication of Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. Uh, my, you know, of course, many of us were already big fans of, uh, of Michael's work. I mean, I, I still think that Botany of Desires is one of the best books about uh, botany about our relationship with uh, with plants and the way in which uh, um, Michael then moved into uh, this position of understanding, writing about, and, and standing up for uh, our relationship to foods and really getting down to the nitty gritty was really remarkable. And then also just watching uh, his uh, his success, the fact that many people responded to the way that he wrote about these things, that they trusted him to address issues of great intimacy. If food is a very intimate thing, uh, there's a lot of culture there. There's a lot of philosophy there even. And uh, so it wasn't just that, uh, that, that, that Michael was a, you know, a, a kind of political thinker who was going to give you some new ideas about psychedelics. He was somebody uh, who was going to possibly open the door for a lot of people who might otherwise be a little bit nervous or very nervous about even thinking about psychedelics in a positive light. Uh, it was easy to imagine them um, following uh, into, uh, into Michael's viewpoint in, in how to change your mind. So uh, there was a lot of discussion among people I know, you know, inside the scene, inside the, uh, the, 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 the various organizations that uh, promote psychedelics and people who have been uh, in the underground for a long time. Uh, about what was going to happen. Uh, was this going to be a watershed? Was it going to uh, shift the already changing conversation even more drastically? And I think it has. Uh, and so um, when How to Change Your uh, Mind first came out, I, you know, I, I kind of wanted to talk to Michael right away. And then I realized that it was actually more fun to let him go through the exhausting, whatever, month and a half of publicity that he's been doing since the book came out in May, and then check in and, uh, and see where we were at. Because um, I could tell that, that uh, I, well, I would, well, we can find out, but it was very interesting watching him become probably a spokesperson in a way that he might not have uh, anticipated. Uh, and so... It's, it offers a great opportunity to reflect on the ways in which psychedelic discourse is changing and how rapidly it's changing uh, in the contemporary world. So, Michael, thanks so much for making uh, time for me. I'm sure you're a little tuckered out on talking about the book, but uh, way to go. Uh, 
No, I'm 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 game. I've had a couple of days off. Oh, that's uh, thank good. you, Eric. It's it's good to be here, and it's good to be talking to your listeners. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I was actually kind of curious. I mean, how much of of the publicity that you've done, the the talk shows, the lectures, the interviews, the podcasts, the radio, uh, how much of it would you say was coming from, let's call it in a very loose sense, uh, the underground rather than the mainstream? Uh, relatively little. I mean, I did a couple events that were specifically organized by people in the psychedelic community. I did one in San Francisco on the 6th of, uh, of uh, June, I guess it was, um, that psychedelic seminars organized in, um, in, in San Francisco. And then I did an event uh, in London for the psychedelic community there. Um, at all the events, there were people who were, you know, connected to the psychedelic community, I'm sure, but there were lots of people who weren't. And that was the interesting uh, thing for me is that, you know, as you said, I mean, it, it wasn't at all clear whether the, the culture was ready to have a, a, a matter of fact conversation about psychedelics and, you know, and, and treat them as a tool, um, you know, good for certain things, not good for other things there's, you know, there's been such a stigma in the mainstream about psychedelics where, you know, the 60s is still alive in, in that world or has been. So um, it was really surprising to me and I think to my publisher too, um, how open people were uh, to take another look. And uh, so most of my events were mainstream events. Um, yeah, I've done some podcasts uh, and a couple, a couple public events for the community. But, um, uh, you know, I mean, this book is, has one foot in that world and one foot in the other world, right? I mean, it's, that's an important fact about it, that I think how this book is distinguished to some extent is that it is, it, it, it's not written for people in the community necessarily. It's, it's really, you know, I was new to this world uh, in many ways. And I was, um, so I brought uh, the, the 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 perspective of of the newbie, which I think created a a way in for people who were perhaps curious but not convinced or, and not and uh, not ready to jump. Um, oh, it, so. yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that was sort of I think even even before uh, uh, you know I got your book and and was talking to people about it. We a lot of us were like, okay, you know, what's it going to be like? And we're like, you know, this really isn't for us. So it's it's kind of like it, it was more about reading how how um, you know what are the elements that you would bring forward that would help uh, raise these issues in a larger zone. And and I was not surprised that that people took up the conversation. Um, although I still think it's really worth asking why. Um, I want to come back and talk about the psychedelic community a, a little bit later, but to stay with the, the mainstream response, which I would say is, has been very positive, you know, at a point where, where politics in America are so divisive and where, you know, all manner of conservatism that, that, we, that many of us on the, on the progressive side of things thought we were over, essentially, has resurged with, uh, you know, alacrity and great power, um, including uh, a sort of, you know, a very conservative interpretation of Christianity, 
uh, a pushback against gay rights, et cetera, et cetera, that at this point of kind of intensified positioning, it's interesting that the the sort of the legacy of the 60s, meaning not just the hippies on the one hand, but also the, 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 the silent majority on the other, the conservative rejection of psychedelics, of hedonism, of liberalism, of all that the psychedelics stood for in, in the counterculture. It's interesting that that's not happening, it seems. I agree. I, I, yeah, there's not the, you know, I look, I expected pushback of various kinds. Uh, and it, so far, it's been absent. Um, but if you're asking, like, why do I think now and why this is happening? I, I think it has to do with the fact that the mental health system is broken, and that these drugs offer potential for healing. And there is a great deal of suffering out there. And that suffering is reflected in everything from many people's votes for Donald Trump, uh, you know, to soothe themselves with that, to uh, the fact that depression, rates of depression are up, rates of suicide are up, um, rates of addiction are up. And, um, and there, we don't have, have a lot of tools. So I found the discussion about the healing implications of psychedelics to be what resonated most powerfully with, uh, let us call them civilians. Um, it wasn't about consciousness expansion, it was about science and healing. Uh, and the other stuff was very interesting as a result, but what I think allowed people to open this door and take a look is the is really the a sense of desperation about um, what is available to help people who are struggling with depression and with addiction and with obsession and and you know I mean addictive behavior is really rampant whether you're talking about uh, substance abuse or or uh, you know other things I mean iPhones <laughs> yeah uh, social no, networks I, I, well I'm I'm curious since I mean I I I, I was at the um, San Francisco event, and you, you spoke about this, and, and that also really struck home uh, for, for me is just not so much the particular claims about healing within the therapeutic uh, research, which is another kind of topic, but more just a general ambient sense among wide swaths of the population, across wide swaths of the population, politically left and right, that something is really broken or there's a kind of pathology pathological return that that nobody really knows how to deal with and i'm curious whether whether you feel like we are really standing up to that reality as much as we could be because my impression is that partly because the the drug industry you know which hasn't come up with anything interesting for decades uh, but is still holding on to its kind of story about uh, drugs and psychological health that somehow with with that force and with the psychiatric profession sort of like you know like uh, jogging in place or treading water that mm -hmm. that that has prevented a larger conversation about the degree of the mental cr health crisis in not just in the in the United States, but in the West. But it seems like that isn't really quite being acknowledged and maybe part of the enthusiasm for psychedelics and the openness to your message isn't just that people think, okay, this might help, although that's clearly something that's happening, uh, but also just like, okay, finally, we can talk about the possibilities of, of mental health in a new way, in a way that's different than this kind of 
that we're kind of constrained in other ways from really addressing uh, the problem. Yeah, no, I think that that's true. I think that there is uh, generally a recognition that we're stuck. We're stuck personally, we're stuck politically, and we're stuck in terms of our how we think about mental health. Uh, and um, uh, people who are not pathological have a sense that they're locked into habits, habits of thought, um, habits of behavior. And it's the promise of psychedelics to break habit, I think, uh, that is what appeals to everyone, whether you, you know, whether you, you know, you're into this because you have a, a loved one who's, who's dying or has depression or struggles in some way, or you're just kind of a person moving through the society at this particular moment where um, forward, forward movement seems very hard to, very hard to find. Um, so I, I think there's something in the zeitgeist that just once again is coinciding with these powerful molecules. And, um, uh, and that's interesting, you know, uh, did I know that was going to happen? No. I mean, you know, one of the things we journalists get paid for is having a little bit of sense of what's around the next corner. Um, you know, and there, there must've been some reason that I was drawn to this subject at this time uh, in the same way I was drawn to looking at food and agriculture in 2006 when I published, uh, Omnivore's Dilemma, but I make no claims to, uh, to being visionary only like that's a, it's, it's kind of an antenna that we develop that, oh, there's something, there's something going on here. There's a reason that people are thinking about this, but also we shouldn't, we shouldn't, um, underestimate the, the power of a, you know, a couple of these scientific findings and papers um, that are really arresting. I mean, that's what got me interested, right, was reading about these papers coming out of Johns Hopkins and NYU. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've been privy to some focus groups looking at the, the public's attitude towards psychedelics, and um, there's still a lot of resistance out there, and it's important to understand that my audience is not the general audience. I mean, there's self-selection going on and the people who are paying attention to this. Uh, first, there are people who read books. And as you know, that's a tiny, tiny fraction of the culture. And um, although, you know, I did do a fair amount of radio and television, um, it's still kind of a pretty um, progressive tranche of the culture. And um, for other people, I think, you know, there, there is a trickle down effect and eventually I'll probably do a, a documentary based on the book as I've done with um, past books. There's, a, there's the expanding circles of, of, of influence and books are, books are in some ways, they do have a very important role because they influence other media um, and they, have a, they still have a special authority in our culture even though the numbers are, are you know, shockingly small. Um, but there, so anyway, so I, what we're talking about though is an openness and a curiosity in a particular slice of the uh, of the culture. So we should keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, along those lines, I'm curious whether you had any interviews with what you know we could generally class as as conservative media, because there has been some interest. Uh, you know, positive interest from the right uh, in psychedelic therapy. Uh, you know, the the the, the to, uh, otherwise evil Mercers have given Maps a, a good chunk of change, and uh, Breitbart News has had positive 
uh, uh, you know, coverage of some of their trials. And I think it's, you know, yeah. it's, a lot of it has to do with PTSD and with, with soldiers, soldiers, of course. Yes, and, and police officers, yes. Yeah, um, but but I'm curious whether you saw some of that, either individuals or, or some of the places that were interested in your work, whether you had any sense that there was an aspect of, of more conservative media tuning into uh, the message of how to change your mind. Yeah, well, I don't know where you put people like Joe Rogan on the uh, on the political spectrum. Um, good uh, question. <laughs> yeah, good question. I mean, it's a little mixed up, right? Um, but you know, sometimes he's 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 put down as part of the intellectual dark web. Although I, I still have a pretty vague sense of what that is. Um, so there is interest. I don't. I don't think it's. Uh, I don't. I, I don't. I don't mean to suggest there's a left-right thing here. Uh, I think there's less of that than you might guess. I, I, I guess I'm describing more of a, a general public versus a thought leader, you know, influencer elite. Um, you know, there was some very interesting commentary uh, by uh, there's a, a, a Christian conservative writer, uh, Rod Dreyer, um, who has a column. He used to be at the Dallas Morning News, I think, and he has he's a, a great writer. Yeah, he's a really interesting, smart guy who uh, we've crossed paths before because he's also very interested in agriculture and animal welfare. And he wrote a very thoughtful uh, review of the book and got some got some shit for it, I think, in his community, and then wrote some more about it. It's a very interesting trail to follow. Um, and he was just encouraging Christians uh, and conservatives to be open to the to the potential of psychedelics. And this is from someone who had had very little, I think, experience himself, if any. Um, and, and once again, I think that was a measure of uh, a desire to do what psychedelics do, which is shake up the given, shake up the structures of, of authority uh, intellectually. Um, and this recognition that... Um, you know, we need to, you know, as, as Robin Carhart Harris said in the book, we need to shake the snow globe. And, and that goes not just for us as individuals, but for us as a society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's interesting whether, you know, there, you, you can um, to stay a little bit more on the on the left, right, uh, just for whatever reason. I'm thinking that you could you could make a kind of generalization a false generalization in some ways but in other ways probably true that one feature of the the progressive versus conservative tension is that is that by nature or temperament progressives tend to be more interested in having an open mind encountering difference being challenged by things that force you to learn about how other things are you know there's sort of mm -hmm. sense of openness i mean and, and i am this is a bit of a cartoon, but I think it's worth looking at, whereas at least some parts of conservatism, particularly social conservatism, obviously what Republican globalist corporate guys are doing is something entirely different. But on the social conservative side, there's an emphasis on tradition, on, you know, st staying within the boundaries of what we know, of so holding mm -hmm. Hierarchy, fast. authority, yeah. Do you think that that model is, I don't know, maybe a little bit, in our way, as we start to think about how the, the mental health issues in particular can open up a wide range of people to the need to sort of get unstuck, to change our minds, to, to you know, discover new ways of, of being uh, at, at, this, at this moment? 
Yeah, I don't think we should take that too far. I mean, there's some interesting research that, um, you know, before and after psychological surveys of people on psychedelics uh, done at Imperial College that suggests a reduction in authoritarian tendencies after psychedelics and an increase in what they call nature relatedness, the ability to, to feel like you're part of nature rather than standing outside it. So there are some interesting hints of a political tendency. Uh, you know, I don't know how, but I, I worry that like a lot of this research, it could be somewhat primed by the people conducting it and that um, they're coming at it with that kind of perspective. And it's very easy to infect your subjects with, with uh, you know, those kind of points of view. Um, well, you know, just, just to stop on that, actually, actually, I want to really admire the point you just made and the way that you have made that point regularly in your public presentations about this project, because you don't hear that very much. You don't hear that from people who are enthusiasts about psychedelics and their possibility, and you don't hear it from a lot of the doctors and from a lot of the researchers um, that confirmation bias, that the structure mm -hmm. of set, the whole issue of set and setting is very complicated. If you really think about it, set and setting applies to all of these research programs as well. So, you know, even when you try to quote unquote uh, double bind the situation, which you can't really do effectively, uh, it's very hard to get those sorts of expectations and biases out of the data that then comes through the other side. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, particularly if you're trying to make people feel better because there's a lot of different ways you can make people feel better. But I just really appreciate the way that uh, you, uh, you know, bring in that skeptical note when talking about the research that is so often just hyped and, and just packaged as if it's just, you know, the latest absolute truth. Yeah, well, you know, it is, it, the research is very suggestive and I take, you know, I, I think we do see a strong signal of the therapeutic value, um, but there's no question, just comparing the, um, the English uh, research with the American research, you see how culture shapes results and, and more with psychedelics, I think, than many other treatments just because of the importance, as, as Timothy Leary, you know, emphasized in, uh, of set and setting, and that uh, it is hard to blind these studies. And you just sense uh, volunteers picking up on the intellectual orientation of the researchers. Um, so for example, uh, in England, um, they don't see as much mystical experience as they do in America. Uh, that's a very common hallmark of a successful treatment with psychedelics is that someone will report having what uh, is judged to be a complete mystical experience. And of course, they have a scale for that. And then you get to England, you talk to those researchers and say, we don't see a lot of mystical experience. Um, we see ego dissolution. Now, I would, uh, in, in a powerful experience that seems to be effective, I would argue those are probably uh, different words for the same phenomena um, and that the experience, I mean, if, if, if you're comfortable with that psychodynamic word, ego dissolution, that, you know, would, is very similar because once the ego is dissolved, you have less of a sense of boundaries and therefore you feel like you're merging with some larger entity, the universe or community or whatever it is, nature. Um, so my guess is they're the same thing and that there is some kind of core 
reality there, but uh, we should be you know, careful to understand that we're putting words to a very inchoate experience and that those words are, are infused with values and assumptions. And you know, I don't think it's an accident. I don't mean to take anything away from the research, but the fact that you know, two of the driving forces I describe in the book uh, who helped bring research back in America at Johns Hopkins were Bob Jesse and Roland Griffith, both of whom came at this with a strong spiritual orientation. Um, whereas in England, you have, uh, the, I think the leading uh, force there is Robin Carhart Harris, who, who happens to have been a Freudian when he got into this. Um, so it's very, it's, it's a great little test. And in, in when you compare what, what they observe and see that in both cases, um, their, their orientation seems to be reflected in, in the results they're getting. And, and again, I don't mean this in any kind of disrespectful way. I just think it's inevitable. And anyone doing science needs to be uh, alert to these possibilities because it's just part of the reality. I mean, we tend to give science more credit than it deserves for, you know, absolute objectivity. Uh, you know, we think it has this authority as the final discourse that we can rely on that's not infected by politics. But man, having covered uh, food and agriculture and watched research around things like GMOs and, and industrial agriculture, you know, I know that there's, there's always uh, politics and there's always values. Um, these, are, these are impossible to escape in any kind of science. Absolutely. You know, I want to sh shift a little bit and, and pick up a, an earlier uh, line about about the psychedelic community. And I'm kind of curious, since you came at this, you know, for, uh, more or less from the outside, you had, you know, some connections with people who were, who, were, who were more involved. And then you wrote the book, you did your research, you met who you met. And then you've been out, you know, kind of being a, a you know, an unintended spokesperson in some sense. I mean, it's not a, it's a role you you've been sort of thrust in before uh, through your work with with food and agriculture. Uh, but here it's sort of a, a, a kind of psychedelic role. And, and it's an it's an interesting one because from the on the research side, uh, even in, even including, re, you know, uh, advocacy organizations like MAPS, is that there's a limit on how much they can be like an individual spokesperson. And I mean, even Rick Doblin, who's a very charismatic, uh, very influential character, you know, he's not quite a, a central spokesperson in the way that, that the media universe often wants. And on the other side of the fence, you have the underground. We have all these kind of crazy people. And we've already had our Timothy Learys and our, our Terrence McKenna's. And it's not the time for that right now. That, those guys that <laughs> a friend of mine called the, the, guy, the man with the purple sparkly suit. We don't need the man with the purple sparkly suit right now. So kind of, I think probably partly without you intending it, you find yourself in this position where you're asked not only to be a journalist, but to some degree to be a spokesperson. And I, I'm curious how you saw, what your impressions of the psychedelic community, the people who were signed up, the ayahuascaros, the, the toad shamans, the underground therapists. I mean, it's really more than one community, but let's just call it the psychedelic community. I'm curious how you sort of felt yourself relating with that world as you, you know, served in this kind of spokesperson uh, a function in, in, in the mainstream? Yeah, well, I'm very uncomfortable with the role of spokesperson. Um, you know, I really speak for myself. I'm, I'm a writer and uh, I speak for my uh, experience and my point of view. And, um, 
you know, in the in food issues, I did over time evolve from being a, simply a storyteller to an advocate. Um, but I was much further along in my learning process when I did that. Um, it, it got to a point where I knew so much on those issues that it would have been disingenuous for me to pretend I didn't have a point of view and I didn't have a, a sense of where I wanted to see things go. That's not true in psychedelics. I, I'm still learning. I'm still too new. If you asked me what I think the you know the policy, the proper policy should be regarding psychedelics uh, as a matter of you know national um, decision making, I'm not sure what I would say. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think they should simply be legalized. I, I think that they need. You know, they do need some container. They need some regulation. Um, uh, you know, and so I'm not ready to to advocate really for anything except, um, you know, a good close look and evaluation of these tools and, and whatever people want to do personally to to figure out what they think based on their own experience. At the very second uh, event I did, it was in Cambridge. Uh, I was speaking to an audience on May 16th. The book was published on May 15th. And a woman pops up. First question. And, she, and she's with the Boston and Theogen Network. And she says, as the de facto uh, spokesman for the psychedelic movement, and I just kind of had the shiver go through me. And, and I, you know, and I had to disclaim that. And I, I you know, so I, I see the desire on, on the part of people to have a spokesperson who has access to the media to the extent that I do and uh, brings a kind of, uh, credibility on issues having to do with health, as I think I do from my food work, although I didn't fully uh, realize that. Um, uh, it's, it's, you know, Rick Doblin was in the room uh, when this came up and, you know, he was in the front row and I pointed at him and I said, there's your leader, you know, de facto leader was the term she, she used. Um, so, you know, uh, I think that it points to a lack of leadership and a need for leadership uh, without question. I mean, there are things I can do and I'm, I'm certainly doing them to introduce people to this work and connect people. Cause now I've met a lot of people in a lot of corners of this world and I'm always happy to connect people, but you know, maybe at some point I'll feel like I have the, the, the chops to be an advocate, but that's not where I am. I'm still a storyteller. I'm still learning. Uh, there's so many people in this world uh, who know more about this than I do. Uh, so it would be it would be foolish to think that I I've earned the uh, the right uh, to uh, to lead or to advocate. Well, I, I guess what I wonder is that, that that all makes sense to me that you would have those concerns and not see yourself that way. And, and you know, I didn't. You know, I didn't see you as as being fully embracing that role, but it's almost more that, like, given the situation, it was inevitable that people would see you that way. Yeah, uh, and, and, it, and that may be. And I, frankly, one of the things I was really naive about was that the authority that I've built up, that capital accumulated over the course of, you know, seven previous books, um, would carry over. Uh, you know, when I sit down to write, I don't say, okay, now I, I, I'm this person. I write as this person with this authority. Now I'm going to bring that over to this subject and it's going to, it's going to translate. I, I assume that every bit of authority I have to create in every article, in every book from the ground up. 
Apparently I don't, <laughs> um, but, but I still want to approach things that way. Cause I think that's, that's a shortcut. And yeah, there are people out there, you know, Andrew Weil, you know, who I have enormous respect for. He has, a, he's built up an enormous authority around issues of, of, of health and medicine. And, and that's kind of at the beginning of every book, you start with that. That's why his picture's on the cover. You're buying it because he is pronouncing on this subject and you believe him. I don't approach my journalism that, that way. Um, I still feel that um, it's a bottom-up process of construction every time. And, and it certainly was with this. I mean, this book, you know, all my books could have the sub subtitle that my first book did, uh, which is the word education. That book, the subtitle was A Gardener's Education. All my books are this are the narratives of my education. And I start out as kind of an idiot and, and gradually progress to a state of, of more knowledge, although there's plenty of uncertainty still at the end of this book. God knows on, on what, what, what I've observed in my own psychedelic experience means for my metaphysics. <laughs> so... Um, so yeah, so I so I do I, I want to protect the space to keep learning, experimenting, and um, and and being provisional. Um, as soon as I start writing as an expert, believe me, my writing falls apart. Uh, it's boring, and 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 indeed, that's one of the reasons I wanted to switch subjects. I really prefer writing earlier in the learning curve. Uh, it's much more exciting to me to learn side by side with my reader rather than have this complete education and then start lecturing them. Uh, I think that's, I think, you know, if there's any kind of, if I've learned anything as a writer, it's like, that's not the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny about that authority because it really did work. I mean, I am not alone in being someone who went, all right, Michael Pollan's book's finally out. Now I now I have something to give my mom, you know, and I get, you know. Oh, well, gave, that was a very common thing. Yeah. Many psychonauts bought copies and uh, gave them to their parents. And I'm, I'm happy to provide. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I did it. I went through it. I gave it to my mom and uh, which she had she had two responses. One was was about me, which I was sort of surprised by because I'm, you know, I'm pretty open. I've been writing about this stuff for decades and I don't tend to write uh, personal experiences directly. I don't tend to like I, I'm, I'm leery about speaking from the first person. So I have mostly had the kind of journalistic, cultural, critical perspective. But I mean, I've been in the trenches for quite a long time now. So she, she one of her, her responses was like, so have you done any of these psychedelics? Which I thought was really sweet. And then I wrote back and I said, well, what do you think, mom? What do you guess? <laughs> so, I, so we'll have that conversation later. But the other thing she said, you know, um, what she liked in your book was that her favorite sections uh, was the profile of Paul Stamets, which I'd like to talk uh -huh. about in a moment. But right now uh, was the travelogue where you talk about your personal experiences. She thought that was really good. And, and I also thought you... You know, you're you're you know, you're a great writer, but you outdid yourself on on these. These were really excellent uh, trip reports. And I've read a lot of trip reports. So a couple of questions about that one. Did you ever even consider doing this book without having trip reports in it, your own trip reports? Well, you know, this book begins with an article I did for The New Yorker in 2015 called The Trip Treatment. And uh, that was a very straight ahead piece of science journalism with no first person to speak of. And I was I was describing the uh, trials at NYU and Hopkins, uh, giving uh, giving psilocybin to people with cancer diagnoses, many of them terminal. 
Um, so there was a way to write about it that way. But as soon as I started doing the book, it, it became clear to me that I needed to have this experience myself for a couple of reasons. One was I didn't think I could do justice to it, just merely describing other people's experiences. Another reason is this is what my readers have come to expect from me. I do immersion journalism. I find a way to put my uh, first person use it in my in my books. I mean, when I wrote about the cattle industry for Omnivore's Dilemma, I bought a cow. And when I wrote about architecture in a place of my own, I built a house. And I just find that's where I like to stand as a writer, not necessarily for the whole story, but it gives me a, a, a perspective, a kind of authority within the text that I've done this, that I'm describing. Um, and also, uh, I was... I had become so intensely curious about the experiences people were describing to me and honestly jealous of their experiences. Um, you know, these big spiritual uh, transformations that people were having and telling to me, I was like, I had to see what this was about. So no, as soon as I knew I was doing a whole book on the topic, it was pretty clear that it would have some personal dimension. Uh, I didn't know how central that would be to the book. Um, and of course, there are whole chapters that aren't. Uh, don't have a strong first person at all. But I've always found the first person a, a really good tool. Um, I don't actually um, use it to talk about myself. I, I use it as a lens uh, to help people see a story from that unique perspective. Because, you know, doing a big psychedelic experience for the first time you, you never get that first time again, obviously, right? And there's a quality of wonder and uh, a depth of noticing that you'll never, you'll never have again. And so that even though there are people with far more experience than me and people with far less experience than me, there is a sweet spot. And that is the spot of maximum wonder uh, that you have uh, with first sight. Um, and so I thought that was something to take advantage of. The fact that I hadn't had, you know, big psychedelic experiences before, I realized was a real strength. Um, so, you know, first, my first thought is, you know, oh, there's so many people who experience psychonauts. And there was some guy in England who wrote a, a, a kind of pissy review where he's a very nihilistic novelist. Um, where he said, he started out and said, I've had a hundred experiences of ego dissolution. Like, what do I have to learn to, from this guy who has one? Well, he kind of missed the point. Um, I'll bet he can't describe those experiences in quite the same way after a hundred times uh, around the block. Um, so anyway, and this is a perspective, I mean, this is a literary question we're talking about now. Um, that I, I acquired from a book I read when I was a teenager called Paper Lion by uh, George Plimpton, who was um, editor of the Paris Review and a, and a really good sports writer. And he, he set out to reinvent sports writing, uh, which he realized suffered from an excess of, of been there, done that, you know, sideline cynicism. Um, and that, uh, you know, that cigar chomping, seen it all perspective that most sports writers have. And he got on the field and he convinced the Detroit Lions to let him play quarterback in a scrimmage. Uh, at great risk to himself, he did this. But it gave him a perspective that no football player on the field had and no fan had either. And that's always been in the back of my mind, I realize, as a writer. Like, how can I put myself in that position? Um, because I think it has a lot to offer the reader. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, it's a very interesting feature of psychedelics. Like we can't really, you can't really think adequately about how they work, how, what they can do for, for us or can do to us uh, without thinking about trip reports because it, they're, they're absolutely integral to the whole process, even though they always rest on this kind of mystery because it's one person's experience. It's not going to be your own experience. It's not like you're going to the same world that I'm going to go to or the guy down the block is going to yeah, go to. Right. There's, there's something unique about them, like individ, like dreams, and yet they're not boring in the way that a lot of dream narratives are boring in the sense that they're, they're pointing towards something that still it may be of some use to you because there, there's a way in which our expectations you know, shape our experiences, our set and setting is unavoidable in a way. And that set partly comes from our consumption of other people's experiences. So there's, a, there's an interesting feedback loop that goes on uh, with the language around these, you know, n- notoriously ineffable experiences. And yet we keep, we approach them with these sort of layers of, of language, of hints, of protocols, of other people's experiences. So it's a, it's a very interesting kind of literary form uh, as well as being a, a way to practice kind of uh, immersive journalism. I, I'm curious if, if of, of all the ones, since I think there's like maybe four experiences you write about, three or four experiences? Well, at depth, there are four. And then there's a couple I, I mentioned in passing. My ayahuasca experiences are kind of more in passing toward the end. Yeah. Right. But basically, but four which, extended Which accounts. one were you more, most satisfied with, since there's always the sense that you're not As a matter of writing? It. Yeah. As a matter of I, I would say the um, uh, both of the psilocybin experiences, there was one that was unguided, that was very much about nature and was very moving experience of being in my garden and uh, feeling a, a kinship with these plants that I had, I had felt intellectually, but not as a matter of powerful emotion. I mean, the, the, the fact, I mean, I've, you know, in my, in, in, you alluded to Botany of Desire at the beginning, and that, that is a book that takes seriously the idea that plants are subjects too. We're not the only perceiving subject, acting subject in nature. Um, um, you know, that was an, a, an important idea, but it was an intellectual idea. And uh, I actually experienced that, that this sense of the subjectivity of, um, of all the plants in my garden. It was a very powerful moment. So, and that was, you know, look, they're all hard to write about. Uh, and I approached the trips with incredible trepidation. Um, you know, trip reports can be really boring. They're hard to do well. And you're right. You, you have a lot of uh, voices in your head. Uh, I think Aldous Huxley was, is a very powerful voice. I, I think everyone who's written about their trips post Aldous Huxley has been influenced by uh, his take. And, um, and this is inescapable. That this is kind of why, you know, Albert Hoffman's trip is so interesting because it, it was pretty innocent of expectation. Um, you know, nobody had had this experience before. And um, so, yeah, it's fascinating as a literary challenge. I, I approached it with enormous trepidation. In the end, I've never had more fun writing. Yeah, um, I yeah. loved working on these, on these trip reports. I, th- it, I think it shows, too, there, there's really a, a, a kind of novelistic liveliness and an emotional quality, particularly to that, the unguided uh, mushroom experience. I mean, I'm, I'm 
I've all, I'm always I'm generally much more interested in unguided experiences than guided experiences. Mm-hmm. That's another topic, but that may be why I found that uh, moving. But I, I also liked it because of the way that you talked about the experiences you were just mentioning, where you felt like your intellectual sense of plants as subjects sharing our world uh, became becomes a kind of lived experience. There's an emotional connection. There's a sense of interdependency and even a kind of I thou a sort of animism. Mm-hmm that you that you allude to but also the ways in which those feelings are bound up with these kind of qualities of poignancy of uh of of uh you know a kind of emotional fragility uh that's mixed with awe but also a kind of sadness um and those are all very resonant affective places for me and i think they're i think they're actually related so i guess a, a kind of more metaphysical question I'd ask you is, you know, you talk often about being a very, very science oriented guy, a very materialist guy, very not, not someone who thinks in, in, in God talk in religious terms. How, when you, when you, when you tell, when you wrote that story about communicating with the plants and you kind of make a joke about it in the account, you know, oh, I'm, I know it sounds super goofy, da, da, da. How do you think about it now? Do you think about like, well, I'm really happy that mushrooms enabled me to have this kind of experience. Or do you actually feel like you know something? And I, I use that yeah. word very consciously. No you know quality. something about the world, about nature, about plants that you didn't before. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, there is a sense in which the power of the insight lingers because it was so strongly felt. Um, same with the, you know, that moment during the, the guided LSD trip where I, I felt like, wow, love, love is the most important thing in the universe. And um, it was one of those things you know, but you don't think about that often because our, our brains are tuned to tune out the familiar, uh, the thought you've had before. But suddenly the familiar becomes so resonant, so powerful. Um, so it, it, it's in both cases, there were things I knew, but I, I, I guess I just knew them in a new way. And that new way, I don't, I don't have the emotional force that I was experiencing when I go through my garden today, but there's some residue of that without question. Um, you know, I do think I, I learned true things, um, during the experience. Um, but you know, it, it, but it fades too, um, without question. And, uh, so, you know, but in those cases, they were, they were, they were kind of reifications of, of beliefs that I had before. So I'm, I'm trying to think if there was anything I, I learned that I didn't know. Um, I mean, Intellectually, you know, for me, the big takeaway from the whole experience was this recasting of what spiritual means. Um, I had been really allergic to that word because I associated it with the supernatural. Um, People who had spiritual experiences had a belief in things that the laws of nature could not explain. Um, And I just don't think that, I I just didn't believe in that. but rather than acquire a, a new conviction that supernatural things are real, I, I acquired a new understanding of what spiritual means. And that is that it is the, that it is the antithesis of egotistical. 
and that the experience of ego dissolution or non-dual consciousness that that happens can happen on a high dose psychedelic experience is a release from the the the, the walls and the um, the barriers that um, keep us from connecting at a deep level. And to me, spirituality is about connection to the universe, to nature, to other people. And when you put down your defenses or they're put down for you by the psychedelic, um, it opens up these channels of connection that are really powerful and, and can be overwhelming and, and quite beautiful. And I realized oh, that's all it is, that a spiritual experience is this, is this felt connection to something larger than yourself that was always there and always available, but something stood in the way, and that something is the ego. Um, so that was the newest thing that I learned, and, and I believe that deeply now, um, and that I, I, you know, I, I see the ego as an impediment to um, uh, powerful senses of connection. Um, I, not that I, I, I um, denigrate the uses of the ego. I think you, there's a reason we evolved egos, I think. Um, but I think that they also can get a little out of, out of control and they can sometimes keep us from, uh, from feeling connection, from feeling love, from feeling uh, that we're part of nature. Um, so that's the big thing I learned. And, and, and that was an enormously useful thing. And, and that serves me well still. Um, uh, and, uh, and I try to connect with that experience whenever I can. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Is that how, how do you feel like, I mean, you know, the, the one vision is that, you know, the farther you get away from some experience, the less you can remember it. And then it's yeah. just sort of a vague idea. And then it's just another one of those habitual concepts we have that doesn't really necessarily reflect our actual experience. And then there's another view where like, Hey, once you've sort of established these new sensations or this new way of experiencing reality, in a way you've kind of opened up your, your possibility space and that, you know, becomes part of you and can be cultivated in other ways, uh, not necessarily by returning to the, to the trough. <laughs> and yeah, uh, no, I'm curious how you found it. How have you found that? Well, for me, it's been meditation. Um, you know, after I had that big experience, my guide, uh, who's a very wise woman, you know, I said to her, but so what? What was the value of that? My ego is back, you know, back in uniform, back on patrol. And she said, well, you'd had a, you had a taste of another way of, of meeting life's challenges and, and less defensive and more open. And you can cultivate that. And uh, not by regular use of psychedelics necessarily, but by, um, she, I asked her how, and she said, well, by meditation. And I think that that's right. I, I don't think it's an accident that so many people who get involved with psychedelics eventually turn to meditation. I think psychedelics makes you a better meditator, if we can put a value judgment on that. I think it gives people a sense of the destination um, that they're trying to get to on meditation. And it also, when it really works, can uh, reduce the the voice of ego consciousness, um, and that um, there's a there are fascinating overlaps between psychedelics and meditation, and it's no accident I think that you know many if not most of the of the American Buddhists that you know you've heard of I mean the leaders of that community um, began with psychedelics, uh, and, you know I, I see why I see the logic of that. Um, 
So yeah, for me, that's how I carry it over. Um, I would, you know, if psychedelics were legal, I would, I would probably, you know, try to use them once a year, um, perhaps on my birthday as a, as a way to kind of recharge that perspective. Um, I think that that would be really useful. Um, but given now my visibility and my openness about my use, um, you know, I, I don't feel they're available to me right now. Yeah. On, on that, uh, that point about the, you know, you, you know, we're talking about the, the legal situation here and issues of visibility and invisibility, the underground, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you have these, uh, you've had the, you, you had a number of really positive experiences of underground therapists, you know, uh, the, the, this whole world that's been going on for decades and decades, you know, really since the 60s, it never really went away. And then, you know, mm -hmm. through the 70s and 80s, it became quite developed. And in some parts of the country, you know, a very well-established network of people who knew each other, sharing protocols, sharing ideas, all sort of off, off the radar and not even particularly countercultural. Like even as you have all the sort of countercultural psychedelia continuing on with the Grateful Dead or the rave scene or whatever, there's still this more quiet underground of people continuing yeah. to do therapy and the, the the therapists that you profile in the book are very interesting rich characters uh, i think i actually know one <laughs> and uh uh what inter what interests me is how you how you feel about that world now that things are transitioning i mean a lot of these therapists are in a, a weird kind of bind they have a great deal of expertise a great deal of experience and then there's this sort of opening, this possibility of having legal therapy uh, just around the corner, you know, maybe phase three trials, maybe we can do with MDMA. And of course, people are already using ketamine uh, <coughs> in, in varying degrees uh, uh, of, you know, therapeutic sort of construct around it. Some people are just dosing people with ketamine, but other people are kind of using some of these tools of constructing and reflecting and integrating experience. I'm curious how you... Is this a resource that we we're, we 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 risk losing? Is it is it uh, uh, did, did, was your sense from talking with a lot of underground therapists that that they were excited about what was changing? Where there's was there some concern that that the new regime would 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 put their own work in question? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, I thought that there was. Now that we have this generation of above ground guides who are being trained at places like uh, California Institute of Integral Studies, you know, it seemed to me a little unfair that there is all this, this reservoir of wisdom. People have been at it for decades and, and really know the territory that they, they don't have a place in this new legal world. And, um, but talking to them, I find at least the ones I talk to, I can't speak for all of them, they're okay with that. <laughs> They're, they're busier than ever. Um, and that uh, the prospect of legal psychedelic therapy is not going to um, hurt their market. I don't really think they're in competition. I think that the kinds of people who uh, would frequent an underground therapist, yes, yeah, some of them might, might end up in legal therapy, but there's so many other people who, as they hear about it, uh, are eager to do it. And there is simply not going to be enough supply of, um, of legal therapists. And, uh, and also there's going to be, you know, a lot of restrictions on, you know, you ha you'll have to have the right indication uh, to get access. And, um, you know, I don't think it's, it's going to be so easy so that I think that there'll be 
plenty of work for everyone. Um, I also think for some people, the, the approach of the underground therapist uh, is different and important to them. They tend to be a little more, you know, shamanic um, in their and an in, in interventionist in their approach, and I think that that'll serve some people and not others. So, my my bigger worry, I think, is that there are a lot that there will be a lot of charlatans. Um, the problem with an underground, like with the problem of prohibition, is that you you can't regulate it. Um, so how will the underground community police itself? Um, how will they prevent, uh, if they can, lots of people hanging up shingles as underground therapists who don't know what they're doing, who may not have very good medicines? Um, and, uh, you know, in the underground, there's usually only one therapist. So you don't have that protection against things like sexual abuse that you have in the overground or the above ground where you have, you know, usually a man and a woman um, present all the time. Um, so I, my, my big worry is that stories emerge from the underground as are starting to happen with these, um, you know, these uh, pseudo shamans working in South America. Um, you know, some, some really, some people get hurt um, because of the demand and, uh, and the fact that charlatans pop up everywhere. So that's my bigger worry. I think, I think the really experienced underground therapists are going to be fine. Um, you know, uh, yeah, there's a possibility that the government might come after them to make an example. Um, but most of them are, are, are very careful. And, um, I don't think politically it'd be too smart to go after people who are really providing therapy, uh, who are helping people who are in suffering, but it could happen. Uh, and, and that's why everybody, I think now more than ever needs to be extremely careful. Well, on, on that cautious, but very, uh, largely optimistic note, nonetheless, um, I will have to wrap it up here. Uh, so, uh, Michael, thanks so much for uh, coming on Expanding Mind. Oh, thank you, Eric. I knew it would be an interesting conversation with you, and it was. Great, great. All right, folks, Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book, and it's a great book for your mom. <laughs> Until next week, <laughs> keep your minds open. 